Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. This hour, the Israel-Hamas war is having an impact on those who have loved ones in the Middle East. We'll hear from a Chicago mother working to get her son freed after he was taken hostage by Hamas in October. College students on both sides of the divide say they are struggling with how to cope. We'll talk with two of them. And during this conflict, Hanukkah has arrived. We'll listen to Jews in the Chicago area discuss what the celebration means to them. Also ahead, public corruption, a run of high-profile cases in Illinois, has the potential to disillusion voters. But is that happening? A report finds bad news for many prison facilities in the state, and changes to the plant hardiness map have been made for the first time in a decade. What the map shows for Illinois. That and more this hour on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. In recent weeks, TikTok and Instagram feeds have been filled with videos of pro-Israel and pro-Palestinian groups shouting each other down on college campuses across America. But off-screen steps away from the clashes and anger are college students on both sides of a seemingly uncrossable divide struggling with grief and fear. Lisa, Corey, and Philip talk with two of them to see how they're coping. I remember reading about the music festival that had been bombed, and I was like, I don't know, it felt very close. Uh, I love going to music festivals. I love being around people in that environment, and ha- the fact that something as innocent as listening to music could turn into this dystopian s- scene in which hundreds or thousands of people were killed, uh, Jews that were my age, who don't have any involvement in the Israeli government uh, was truly horrifying and saddening. My name is Callie Stoller. I go to Northwestern. I'm a junior. Uh, I, I major in religious studies with a concentration in law and politics and a minor in classics. My name is Yusef Haswa. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> Uh, fourth year at the University of Chicago studying political science with a specialty in race, indigeneity, and diaspora. How can I go to class when people in Gaza don't have beds, like they don't have water? Half their family members are under rubble. Like when people who like look like my dad and look like my sister and look like um, my grandfather, like don't have limbs, how can I consider to be a college student? There's no college life when there's no Palestinian life. Yusuf stands underneath a tree at the center of his school's quad. It's strung with bottles painted red, green, and black, the colors of the Palestinian flag. Nearly every day since October, he's been organizing and demonstrating here with other pro-Palestinian activists. 20 miles north, Callie's sitting on an old-school yellow velour couch in her apartment a few blocks from campus. She turns inward. The violence happening half a world away makes her cautious about where and with whom she shares her grief. I feel hesitant reaching out to new people or going into more academic spaces or classrooms um, and saying that I'm Jewish and saying that I, that I don't fully support either side, that I am kind of in the middle. Um, 
in the middle in a way that leans very much towards a pro-Palestinian cause, but also has an emotional stake in the continued existence of Israel. Callie runs her fingers through her bangs as she thinks about what to say next. It, it feels like everything's very close to the surface, that one wrong word and I'm going to be canceled or something. Yusuf finds a bench on the Midway, a grassy boulevard at UChicago, framed by tidy rows of trees. The chatter of the quad is replaced by the chiming of bells from Rockefeller Chapel. These last few weeks have been some of the hardest weeks of my life. Like it just like being on being on the phone with family and um, things being uncertain and having your identity be so politicized and losing friends I've known for 10 years. I had a classmate of mine come up to me after class and he told me that Israel should continue to bomb the um, children in Gaza because if they don't, then they'll grow up to kill Israelis. Just being you, like just being Palestinian is a problem for some people, like is, is a topic for heated debate. Like that is, like how can you ask a child, how can you ask a student, how can you ask an adult to navigate that? Yusuf wears a Palestinian keffiyeh draped on his broad shoulders. Today and every day, he says. His father and grandfather were expelled from Palestine in 1948. Some settlers walked into their shop and were like, this is ours now. They walked physically from Palestine to, to Jordan. My dad never knew a home. He spent the rest of his life trying to get back to be the next generation that has to like watch like our parents and our grandparents, like not, not feel what home is, like really makes you feel unsettled. Back in Evanston, Kelly points to a bronze Hanukkah menorah on her fireplace. She says her roommate bought it for her from Goodwill for $2. It reminds her of the one she grew up with. Her dad's family is Jewish and fled pogroms in Russia and Poland. My grandfather, escaped in a hay basket that was stuck through with a pitchfork and he was so small that it missed him. Those centuries of persecution makes having a home and a place that is considered a Jewish state very important for Jews. You can see Callie turning that over in her head. She too mourns the lives lost in Gaza listening to interviews from doctors who say that they have to operate with flashlights on their phone on children who have lost limbs, who don't have any more anesthetic to use. Like, you can't hear those stories and continue to support Israel. That sort of internal conflict is very isolating. In the Muslim faith, you have to say Alhamdulillah, which is thank God for everything. Um, and it really was hard for me to see God's wisdom in this. Yusuf is not only grieving the deaths of thousands of Palestinians, he's lost friendships too. My brother-in-law just shared like, when will there ever be another time in your life where you know exactly who stands for you and who doesn't? It's been comforting, he says, to look out into the crowd at demonstrations and see Jewish, Black, Asian, Arab, and indigenous faces together. Honestly, I don't know if I would have the bravery to show up 
in the ways that my comrades are. If I wasn't Palestinian, they're showing up to show up. In Hyde Park, Yusuf leads demonstrations and chants through a megaphone. In Evanston, Kelly picks up her phone. I call my dad almost every day <laughs> and I talk to him about it. I make my roommate listen to me. Um, all of my friends, I have talked to them enough about it that I think they understand where I'm coming from. I think the thing is, like, I don't have an answer. Like, I don't know what should happen. I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just 20 years old. I'm in college. I don't even have my bachelor's degree yet. But I feel like so many people around me seem to know the answer. Callie and Yusuf know the conflict is so much bigger than them and that it won't be resolved tomorrow or the next day. For now, they're looking for people with whom they can safely grieve and be themselves in the hopes of finding some peace. Lisa, Corey, and Philip, WBEZ News. Every child under the age of five in Illinois will soon be able to receive a free book every month in the mail thanks to a partnership between the state and the Dolly Parton Imagination Library. Here's Governor J.B. Pritzker. Nearly 30 years ago, Dolly Parton started giving away free books to children in her home county of Sevier, Tennessee. Now, her Imagination Library sends more than two million free books every month to children across the world. In Illinois, already about 30,000 children receive the free monthly books. The state's spending $1.6 million to expand the program to every pre-kindergartner in the state. All parents will need to do is register their children through local libraries or other partners. Data can save lives, and it can reduce health disparities. That's according to the head of the U.S. Census Bureau, who addressed a conference in Normal. Census Bureau Director Robert Santos spoke at the statewide 2023 Minority Health Conference at Illinois State University about how the census has tools available for research and the public. And he spoke with Melissa Ellen after his keynote address. What I did in the first half was talk about the value of bringing one's whole self to the table in terms of creating more environments to get new insights. So we're talking about bringing your values, your culture, your life experience, as well as your technical training to bear on research and research questions. And when you do that, you end up creating unique perspectives that are yours alone and that can add insight that otherwise would not have been attained. What have we been getting wrong? How do we fix the way that we are framing our health research? Well, the way I like to look at it is that there is no wrong and right. There is always better and more insightful. That means that in addition to the typical things that are being taught by professors and researchers to students, about how to approach 
particular social problems with analytic data, you allow time for people to reflect using their culture, their values, their life experiences, because that can end up creating a different set of more relevant questions to be asked and a different way of looking at the information collected and the inferences, the insights that you gain to add value. And with this conference, the Minority Health Conference, obviously a focus is on health equity, on racial equity. So if you can speak to that issue at all and how that plays in here, and I'm sure the census as well, how that plays into it. The issue of equity would not really, it will always exist. However, you can't define it unless you have the data to show, unless you have the evidence base. And what uh, I did today at this conference was uh, offer several different census data products that can be used to help elucidate, identify, and then characterize inequities that exist in our society, whether they be racial or gender or or whatever. Can you provide at all an example of one of those inequities and what we see today? Certainly, there, there are inequities that our census data can show in terms of people's vulnerability to natural disasters. We have a tool called the Community Resilience Estimates that shows risk factors associated with different communities and neighborhoods within communities at the census tract level. And one can pretty easily find that communities that historically are communities of color also tend to be have the higher levels of risk factors associated with them in terms of poverty, availability of a vehicle, broadband access, health insurance access, uh, unemployment, and so forth. And that means that those communities with higher levels of those risk factors that tend to be communities of color would have a harder time reacting to a, a flood or a natural disaster like a wildfire or uh, a snowstorm or a tornado, those types of things. Ultimately, how can we use this data? How can this data inform at a community level to impact, you know, even the local community here of McLean County, Bloomington Normal? We have data tools that we've been creating and and that currently exist that are easy for community members to access and to absorb. They are data visualizations that start with a map of the United States. And then you can, by simply clicking on different geographies, go to the state level, the county level, the city level, the census tract level, and sometimes even the block group level, depending on the on the data products. There are tools like My Community Explorer that are actually very good at characterizing the demographics, the painting a portrait of who a local community is at the census tract level. We have a census business builder 
that does the same, but also adds economic data. So you can look at things like a customer base if you're planning on creating a business. You can look at competitors. You can look at employee bases if you're putting in a manufacturing plant. There's all kinds of rich data at the neighborhood level. Where does the individual in a community fall in this conversation? Individuals make up communities, and so the characteristics of individuals are of high importance, whether it be at the neighborhood or the city or state or or higher levels. We are becoming an increasingly and beautifully diverse nation, and so it's really important for individuals to see themselves in data and in communities so they can have a better understanding of who their neighbors are, what their needs may be depending on the characteristics, whether they're disabled, unemployed, their income levels, their education levels. We provide data so that you can get that picture so that an individual not only sees themselves, but they see their neighbors and their communities and they can do better planning. U.S. Census Bureau Director Robert Santos. He spoke at the annual Minority Health Conference held in central Illinois this week. How does corruption impact democracy? We'll take a look at that on the way next on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. There is a remarkable run of blockbuster public corruption cases filing through Chicago's federal courthouse this year. Dave McKinney examines if the corruption cases are having an effect on Illinois democracy and voters. Acting U.S. Attorney Morris Pasquale appeared before news cameras last spring after a jury convicted four former Commonwealth Edison executives and lobbyists of conspiring to bribe former Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan. For prosecutors, it was a career win, an exclamation point on Justice Department data that shows public corruption convictions in Chicago stand at an eight-year high. If so many people are getting caught, why then, Pasquale was asked, does public corruption keep happening here? We, meeting the feds, have been prosecuting public corruption for a long time. And it seems like a lot of people are slow getting the message. Illinois has had four of its last 11 governors go to federal prison. And more than 2,200 public officials statewide have been convicted of federal corruption charges since 1976, often with each case sounding a little more shocking and brazen than the last. Why it keeps happening in Illinois is important to know, but even more important is measuring what effect corruption is having on the state's democracy and its voters. In a way, that's an even more complicated and interesting question. That's Northwestern University law professor and former federal prosecutor Juliette Sorensen, who teaches courses on public corruption. Corruption impedes democracy in almost too many ways to count. Former Chicago Alderperson Ed Burke is on trial, the fourth major corruption trial this year. Jurors are currently listening to evidence that he allegedly strong-armed city developers to hire his law firm. And in April, Madigan is set to go on trial for racketeering and bribery. University of Illinois at Chicago political science professor Dick Simpson has made a career of studying corruption, everything from judges on the take to shakedowns from governors and aldermen. All of those have informed the public uh, that they shouldn't trust their public officials. And it's been, uh, that's been a negative effect throughout our politics at every level, the level at which people want to contact the public officials, the level in which they have faith in the government decisions that are made. 
Polling has borne out that cynicism. In 2012, the Paul Simon Public Policy Institute at SIU Carbondale found that more than three in four people considered corruption to be widespread. People think all the politicians and government officials are crooks. And when people think like that, studies show voting patterns can suffer. But Becky Simon, president of the League of Women Voters of Illinois, isn't seeing that play out here, at least yet. In spite of corruption on the part of individual elected officials, voters still have confidence in American democracy. That is what League sees. That is why voters are going to the polls. WBEZ analyzed total statewide ballots cast and voter registration totals during the past dozen Illinois general elections dating back to 2000. Sure enough, voter participation actually increased, even in non-presidential years, and it was at percentages greater than the state's population gain during that period. When corruption is exposed, voters are ready and eager to make their voice heard through the democratic process, through voting. But for every potentially encouraging sign like that, there are other examples that show corruption carries a real cost. A 2014 study involving the 10 most corrupt states in the country, Illinois being one of them, found that government expenditures were more than $1,300 higher per capita than in states with lower levels of public corruption. And testimony in the ComEd trial revealed that ratepayers paid billions of dollars more as a result of bribery-tainted legislation that passed. Back on that day when the ComEd case was decided, juror Amanda Schnitker-Sayers hoped the verdict she helped reach would change the system. This should be a landmark where we start to do better for ourselves, for our children, and have pride in our city and our state and not make any shady dealings to get stuff done because we don't need to. In Illinois, that seems to be a message that some of our leaders have missed. This is Dave McKinney. Nearly 140 hostages are still being held captive after being abducted during the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. This comes as released hostages are sharing stories about difficult conditions endured during captivity. One of the remaining hostages is 23-year-old Hirsch Goldberg Polin. He was taken from a music festival after a grenade blew off part of his arm. His parents, who grew up in the Chicago area, have been on a crusade to bring Hirsch and other hostages home. His mother, Rachel Goldberg, spoke with Mary Dixon from Israel. So I understand your son Hirsch is not one of the more than 100 hostages who've been released. Have you heard anything about Hirsch from the released hostages or from any other channels? So far, everyone who has been um, interviewed has not heard about Hirsch. They didn't see Hirsch. They didn't recognize him from the pictures or they didn't see someone with one arm. But we were told that mostly people only saw the people they were being held with. Uh, the one bit of news that, that made us hopeful is that people did say that people who were wounded did seem to have their first stop be at a hospital for treatment. So we are hopeful that on October 7th, after Hirsch's left arm around the elbow was blown off, that he was taken for treatment um, at a hospital. That's our hope and our prayer. Can you tell us a little bit about Hirsch as a person, as your son? Oh, well, that's my favorite topic, so that's pretty easy. <laughs> um, Hirsch is a very curious, well-read, um, respectful, 
funny, but funny, like a dry, sarcastic, but not mean funny. So it's like a special genre of funny. Hmm. Um, he is obsessed with travel and wild about soccer and loves music festivals. Um, and uh, I mean, I could go on and on, but I'll just say he's the perfect son for me. Have people and officials in Illinois and Chicago, have they been helpful in your efforts? Um, we have been in touch with both um, Senators Duckworth and um, Durbin, whose offices have been very supportive to us. Um, and Brad, shoot, what's Brad's last name? The Congress Oh, Schneider, Schneider Congressman Cooper. Schneider. Amazing, wonderful, lovely, very supportive to us. Uh, I'm sorry for forgetting his name, but I haven't slept in 60 nights, so that, you know, plays into my um, brain cells diminishing. Hirsch is the last of the Chicagoland um, hostages. We really need action because at this point, we know from the people who were released that the conditions um, are uh, dangerous and we're living in a very scary, scary chapter. This started on Simchat Torah. It is almost Hanukkah. Is there anything people here can do to offer support? Call the White House switchboard. <laughs> Call the White House comments line. And it takes less than a minute to say, hi, good morning. It's day 61, and there's still eight Americans buried underground in Gaza. And we're not okay with it. And actually, there's 132 other people. You know, this isn't just about American hostages. You know, the hostage population is vast. They're from many different nations. The youngest hostage still being held is 10 months old. The oldest is an 84-year-old man. And they comprise five different religions. This is not a Jewish name. There are Christians there, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists. This is a humanitarian issue, and everyone should be aware of that and advocating for the release of these human beings. Rachel Goldberg speaking from Israel with Mary Dixon. Her 23-year-old son Hirsch was taken hostage during the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel. It's Hanukkah season. For many Jewish people, the Israel-Hamas war and rising anti-Semitic and anti-Islamophobic incidents have added a somber note to the holiday. Adora Namigode spoke with a few people about what this year's celebration means to them. My name is Reva Nathan. Out of the eight nights of Hanukkah, I already have five events I'm going to go to. And if I wanted to go to an event every night of the week, I could. But, I mean, I think it's nice to just maybe have a few nights where it's more of a family thing or friends and maybe more of an intimate thing as opposed to more of a community event. Me personally, I'm not really changing what I'm doing, but just because there's an abundance of events, I'm going to more events. There is a very high security threat. So a lot of these events, right, part of their selling point is, oh, we have armed guards, but there, there's a lot, a lot of events, right? Gideon Horberg, and the spelling is G-I-D-E-O-N-H-O-R-B-E-R-G. I'm a 
reluctantly awaiting uh, Hanukkah. Uh, Hanukkah is the festival of lights, and most years in a time that darkness is uh, more prevalent than light throughout the days when our days are shorter and our nights are longer uh, and darkness is longer, Hanukkah is a very welcome holiday uh, because we light the Hanukkah, the eight-branched menorah with the additional ninth uh, candle as the leader candle uh, that lights all the others, and we we add light to the world. We we emit that light from our homes. We put the Hanukkah in our windows to to brighten the world at its darkest moments. But it also feels scary to do that, um, and I'm reluctant to do that in a lot of ways because I don't want to make my home a target. My name is Brooke Heinzman. I think as a religious Jew, it's easy to kind of dismiss Hanukkah and feel a little like, you know, frustrated with the equivalency of Hanukkah and Christmas. And, you know, it's easy to kind of get wrapped up in that. So I think a lot of times people can seek to minimize Hanukkah. Um, at the same time, when we think about what Hanukkah is, it there's a lot of like relevance to like everything right now. I really feel nervous that like the Jewish world will become more insular, that it will become more, um, you know, more distrusting of the outside. We're supposed to reach out to other people, you know, so we're supposed to remain who we are, but also reach out. And I worry that we are getting closer to this idea of not not reaching out and not um, building those roads outward. I guess my hope in Hanukkah this year is to try and figure out a way to keep keep doing both, you know, to do both and be who we are and stay true to who we are while still building roads outward. Adora Nimigade with that report. This is statewide. The concentration of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere now exceeds 420 parts per million, more than 50% higher than pre-industrial levels, and many industries are grappling with how to reduce or offset their carbon emissions. Dana Cronin with Harvest Public Media reports the ag sector is becoming a front-runner in the race to reduce carbon. Back in April, I visited Jason Lay's farm in Bloomington, Illinois. During the growing season, Lay grows corn or soybeans on this 75-acre plot. And even though this was the off-season, the field was green, dotted with a grass-like cover crop called cereal rye. And what that does is it helps hold the carbon dioxide or the greenhouse gases, so they don't get released out into the atmosphere. These 75 acres of cover crops are holding a lot of carbon. It roughly would be about, hopefully, a ton an acre, so about 75 tons across this whole field. That's about the emissions equivalent of 16 gas-powered cars driven for one year. More and more farmers in the Midwest are experimenting with carbon sequestering cover crops, thanks in part to the newly budding carbon marketplace. And I like to equate them to like the Wild West. Lay is part of Bayer's pilot carbon program, which works like this. Let's say there's a company that needs to offset their carbon emissions. 
Maybe they pledge to reach carbon neutrality within a certain period of time. They can go to Bayer and purchase carbon credits, which basically offset their emissions. Bayer then pays farmers like Lay to plant cover crops, which act as the carbon offset for the company. Other big companies like Cargill and Canada's Nutrien also have pilot carbon programs. Smaller companies like Boston-based startup Indigo do as well. I absolutely am a believer that carbon credits are part of the move to reduce the overall pressure on the atmosphere. Chris Harbert is Indigo's chief strategy officer. Indigo is a relatively young company and focuses exclusively on sustainability. And Harbert says there's a reason they're zeroed in on agriculture. Right now, we could get every farmer on earth to change their behavior if we incented it correctly. And they have the infrastructure, the equipment, they're already dispersed across the globe to make that happen immediately. And that would cause a measurable change to our atmosphere. Harbert acknowledges that scale up would be difficult and would mean revamping the way most farmers farm. That's why Indigo offers short five-year contracts with farmers to avoid scaring them off with long-term commitments. But some say long-term commitments are necessary to reduce the concentration of carbon in our atmosphere. I mean, for the climate, we really need, I would say, durability of carbon stored on timescales of 100 years. That's, I think, what's really necessary to address climate change. Gianna Amador is a co-founder of Carbon 180, a nonprofit focused on carbon removal. She says when it comes to making a real dent in the climate crisis, we need to focus on how to reduce carbon overall, not just offset it. But she says paying farmers to sequester carbon is ultimately a good thing, because right now there aren't many incentives for climate-friendly practices, which can be expensive. What's exciting about these voluntary offset markets is it provides an incentives for farmers to shift practices and potentially helps with some of those financing challenges. If we want more farmers like Jason Lay, she says, we need to incentivize it. And Lay agrees. I mean, it's the obvious American answer. You give me more and I'll figure out how to do it. Money talks, he says. I'm Dana Cronin. Stick around, there is more to come on Statewide. And welcome back to Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. The USDA's latest plant hardiness map suggests plants that thrive in warmer climates might have a better chance of growing in Illinois now than in decades past. Illinois state climatologist Trent Ford says the climate is definitely warming, but he told Tim Shelley that winter climate changes are more complicated than the map might suggest. 
it's one but an important um, sort of indicator of um, ecosystems and and agriculture sort of suitability in a region. So we saw uh, a lot of central Illinois, including uh, Peoria, Bloomington, even even Pontiac, uh, move from uh, what I believe five B to six A. Uh, what what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so the USDA has these different categories and has has had this for at least a couple of decades now. And these um, these hardiness zones are essentially, they're just labels based off of an average lowest winter temperature. So imagine, you know, we go from a whole winter season in Peoria or anywhere and um, whatever the lowest temperature that we get to, minus 10, minus 15, minus 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and then we average that number across uh, however many years, 30 years often, and say, okay, this is sort of the zone. And it's supposed to represent um, kind of, again, that, that suitability of winter. So if we, certain plants can only chill uh, successfully down to a certain temperature. Once we get beyond that, we could see some pretty significant, or in some cases, um, uh, permanent damage to that plant, um, and uh, and so you know when we think about what plants can grow in certain places, um, that that becomes really important. Uh, one reason why you don't see a lot of banana trees in the Peoria area, at least not viable banana production in the Peoria area, because many of those plants can't really survive and uh, at the very most or thrive in in a Peoria winter. Um, and so uh, that's just one indication of kind of that suitability. Uh, but because they, they change these maps every, you know, 10 to 15 years or so, it gives us an idea of how much things have changed. And um, although it isn't just an indicator of climate change or the sole indicator of climate change, we certainly know that winters have gotten warmer across the state and in central Illinois in particular. And um, so we, we see that example of the long-term change in our central Illinois climate in these hardiness maps. And, and, and I'll be honest, you know, comparing this, this map that came out a couple weeks ago to the, the last map before it in 2012, the, the change is, as you mentioned, is, is widespread and it's, it's, it's quite large. I, I think it really indicates, um, you know, how, how uh, in, in partly, how, how much our winters have changed. And as you mentioned at the beginning, I mean, gardeners and farmers, now it's it's warmer here, is basically what this is saying. We have warmer winters. It's not getting as cold as it used to. What does that mean for growers? Does that mean I can grow things here now that perhaps it was too cold to grow in the past? Possibly. Th- this is the this is the complicated issue with, with um the kind of a shortcoming of the way of representing hardiness zones in this way is it's just an average, which means that if 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 the calculation is done right and we have a normal distribution that half the years in this thirty year period had a low temperature below that value. So um you know I use the example I think in in uh in, in the write up from uh Springfield. So uh you know for example eleven of the last thirty years that were used in this map, the temperature actually got below that threshold that Springfield is listed in of minus ten degrees Fahrenheit. So if you say I can plant this plant, perhaps this say cultivar of a blackberry or a blueberry that can chill down successfully to minus 10 degrees but if it gets below that I start seeing damage well if I if I'm going to tell you that that happens in 11 out of the 30 next 30 years that's probably not a viable crop despite the fact that Springfield is listed as a zone 6a so uh, what this means is though is that it can expand the range of the crops that we can grow 
But because every winter is different, it may mean that we that certain plants may still not necessarily be viable in, in that climate. So the year-to-year -year variability is still really, really important uh, for considering what crops can be planted or what plants can, can be viable and what areas. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a complicated picture of our winters are warming. It, it does mean that there are plants that maybe 40, 50 years ago wouldn't have been suitable for central Illinois that are now today. However, we're still in central Illinois. We're still pretty far north, and it can still get very cold, and we can have those variable temperatures. So as we continue to see our winters warm, as the models tell us that we will, it really paints this complicated picture of we should be able to grow different types of crops that may not have been able to have been grown 30, 40 years ago, but we may see some of those failures because of that variability. Right. So we so we can still have a, a very cold winter. I mean, that's, that's outside what... Uh, 6A might suggest because it's just an average, right? Absolutely. We set the, uh, the, the we set the statewide low temperature record just in 2019 there in um, um, Mount Carroll in uh, I think it was uh, minus 38 degrees Fahrenheit just you know just a few years ago and that shows us that overall the average temperature or even the average lowest temperature in the winter time over a 30 year period is increasing and that's how we measure climate change but the variability means that it can definitely still get very cold uh, in the Peoria area and will likely continue to get very cold in the Peoria area for decades to come. Now, one thing I had wondered when I saw the, the new map that had come out, does it kind of looks like the, the 6A zone is following the Illinois River to an extent. Does the river <laughs> have an impact on this? That's interesting. Yeah, so um, it, we do see that kind of pattern there where, for example, my home county of Woodford County, the, the western part of the county is in 6A, while the, the western half is in 5B. There, there may be a bit of a moderating effect of the, the river a little bit for those temperatures where we may not get with the, the very, because we're talking about here one night of the year, right? This is the coldest temperature in, in a winter. Um, when we have the conditions that make for that coldest night, we do see that uh, hills topography in general gives us a lot of variability. And, and this matters a lot when we're thinking about the impact of freeze on, for example, like trees or other types of, of, of plants. Um, well, you'll see half of an apple orchard get nailed with a big freeze and the other half just across the street didn't because it's on a hill or a slope or something like that. So there may be that influence a little bit from the Illinois River. Also, we need to think about that this map is created by bringing together all of the weather stations we have across the across the state and a lot of those weather stations in the tri-county area are right along the river so it may be partly due to the river and also partly due to where those weather stations are but certainly when we think about the extremes in temperature we do see some sometimes those impacts of river valleys and other sorts of things and going to a completely different part of the state here i think you noted that at the far southern tip of the state here, we see 7B for the first time. Uh, what, what's yeah. the significance of that? Yeah, so I think it's it's just 7B is something, it, it's in a very, very, you can't even tell on the map that I posted, but you got to zoom in on the on the USDA map that it's in very southern Pulaski County there along the Kentucky border. Um, and uh, it, it, it doesn't contain a lot of the state. It's just a you know a few square miles. But it's really more uh, sort of a, a representation that um, 
7B is a, you know, it's a hardiness zone that we have, haven't seen before in Illinois, at least since the USDA has done these hardiness zones. So it, it really represents how much things have changed over just a few decades period of time. Also, 7B really represents a hardiness zone that kind of, um, kind of uh, spans um, uh, continental to subtropical climates. So we think about subtropical climates as the southern U.S., right, where we have hot summers, uh, it's wet all year round, and it's uh, they have pretty mild winters. Uh, and, and we're seeing the expansion of those kinds of climates into uh, the kind of the Mid-South and even into southern Illinois. And so, um, again, it, it, you know, it, it, it just represents that overall change in the winter that has been, um, you know, that signal's been so strong and tied to climate change for a while now. That's the Illinois State climatologist Trent Ford speaking to Tim Shelley about changes in the USDA's plant hardiness zones for Illinois. If you want to take a look at the new map, we have it on our show page. Just look for statewide on this station's website. A new report commissioned by the state of Illinois shows its prisons, including two in central Illinois, are in terrible shape thanks to years of neglect and deferred maintenance. Correspondent Edith Brady-Lunny told John Norton what the report finds and what it all means. Well, we have a final report from the consultants that were hired by the state, and they present a pretty daunting view of what lies ahead for Illinois' prison network. CGL companies found that three of the state's 27 facilities are actually approaching an inoperable status. Wow. And and a couple of local prisons are on that list. That's correct. Um, The three prisons on that list are Logan, Pontiac, and Stateville. And the lengthy report cites $2.5 billion in deferred maintenance at the prisons, including $235 million at Pontiac and $116 million at the Logan Prison for Women in Lincoln. What I'm calling on them to do is not just dump money in the system. Uh, what I'm calling on them to do is to ensure that our, our taxpayers' money is well spent uh, and not just dumping money into a failed system. That is uh, Attorney Alan Mills who is uh, an advocate for prisoners, and he has been involved uh, for decades in litigation against the IDOC for conditions at the state prisons. Can you get more specific? What are some of the deficiencies that these consultants found? Uh, The report lists everything from poor water quality, leaky pipes, uh, peeling paint, to uh, makeshift mental health units uh, across the system. And it just goes to show what we've said all along, which is that rather than investing what money they have invested in Pontiac to sort of jerry-rig all this mental health stuff, that that should be somewhere else. So that, again, was Alan Mills. Edith, what do the consultants have to say about the reason these prisons are in such bad shape? Well, the report starts with the fact that some Illinois prisons date back to the 1800s. Pontiac started out as the State Reformatory for Youth in 1892, and Logan was the Illinois Asylum for Feeble-Minded Children in the 1870s, before the state took it over in 1978 for a men's prison. So it's not surprising that these spaces designed for another purpose and time are very ill-suited for today's prison system. 
And also, we have to, uh, to realize that about 9,600 inmates are still housed in those oldest facilities. So what are some of the recommendations in this report? The consultants actually see an opportunity right now uh, to improve the system without investing all that money needed to make the repairs. Um, there's been a sharp decrease in the prison population, actually about 40 percent over the past 10 years, has made um, more space available. The transfer of women housed at Logan to space at the Illinois River facility in Canton would avoid those expensive fixes at Logan, and Pontiac, the consultant said, should see further reductions in their capacity to meet the extreme staff shortages there. And Stateville and Joliet needs new housing and a vocational uh, training center. Those are just some of the nine recommendations in all. Well, the uh, IDOC deals with, uh, with special needs populations that require expensive care as well. What does the report have to say about those needs? Well, it's not surprising that mental health receives uh, some substantial attention in the report. The state's been involved in litigation for over a decade in order to essentially build a new mental health system. That's tough to do in places like Pontiac, where a shortage of correctional officers uh, delays the treatment um, because there are two officers required to escort inmates to the mental health unit. So if you're short-staffed, you're not going to be able to provide that care. The report also recommends replacement of the Dixon Correctional Center Mental Health Unit, and that comes with a price tag of $58 million for a new facility. Has the state announced any plans to address the infrastructure report? Well, the state has had uh, some version of this report since the spring, and as of last Friday, the IDOC uh, said the report was still under review and they have not issued uh, a plan on how they're going to address those uh, $2.5 billion in repairs that could turn into $5 billion within five years, according to the consultants. That's correspondent Edith Brady-Lunny with John Norton. A spokesperson for the Illinois Department of Corrections says the agency has about 3,500 security staff vacancies, including nearly 400 at the Pontiac Prison. About half of the Pontiac Prison jobs that were funded in the state budget are currently unfilled. Staff at the Department of Corrections have attended nearly 300 recruitment events across the state this year and held dozens of screening events for open positions. We're out of time for this episode of Statewide. Thanks for being along with us. And don't forget to join us next week. We'll return with more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. Look for us where you get your podcasts. You can also find our shows. They're available through this station's website and at nprillinois.org, as well as the NPR app. I'm Sean Crawford, and Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois, with help from other Illinois public radio stations.